Section twenty seven of Jurisprudence. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne. Jurisprudence by John Salmond. Chapter eighteen. Intention and Negligence. Part one. Section one hundred and thirty three. The Nature of Intention. Intention is the purpose or design with which an act is done. It is the foreknowledge of the act, coupled with the desire of it, such foreknowledge and desire being the cause of the act, inasmuch as they fulfill themselves through the operation of the will. An act is intentional if, and in so far as, it exists in idea before it exists in fact, the idea realizing itself in the fact, because of the desire by which it is accompanied. An act may be wholly unintentional, or wholly intentional, or intentional in part only. It is wholly unintentional if no part of it is the outcome of any conscious purpose or design, no part of it having existed in idea before it became realized in fact. I may omit to pay a debt, because I have completely forgotten that it exists, or I may, through careless handling, accidentally press the trigger of a pistol in my hand and so wound a bystander. An act is wholly intentional, on the other hand, when every part of it corresponds to the precedent idea of it, which was present in the actor's mind, and of which it is the outcome and realization. The issue falls completely within the boundaries of the intent. Finally, an act may be in part intentional and in part unintentional. The idea and the fact, the will and the deed, the design and the issue, may be only partially coincident. If I throw stones, I may intend to break a window, but not to do personal harm to anyone, yet in the result I may do both of these things. An act, and therefore a wrong, which is intended only in part, must be classed as unintended, just as a thing which is completed only in part is incomplete. If any constituent element or essential factor of the complete wrong falls outside the limits of the doer's intent, he cannot be dealt with on the footing of willful wrongdoing. If liability in such a case exists at all, it must be either absolute or based on negligence. A wrong is intentional only when the intention extends to all the elements of the wrong and therefore to its circumstances no less than to its origin and its consequences. We cannot say, indeed, that the circumstances are intended or intentional, but the act is intentional with respect to the circumstances, inasmuch as they are included in that precedent idea which constitutes the intention of the act. So far, therefore, as the knowledge of the doer does not extend to any material circumstance, the wrong is as to that circumstance, unintentional. To trespass on A's land, believing it to be one's own, is not a willful wrong. The trespasser intended, indeed, to enter upon the land, but he did not intend to enter upon land belonging to A. His act was unintentional as to the circumstance that the land belonged to A. So if a woman marries again during the lifetime of her former husband, but believing him to be dead, she does not willfully commit the crime of bigamy, for one of the material circumstances lies outside her intention. With respect to that circumstance, the will and the deed are not coincident. 
intention does not necessarily involve expectation i may intend a result which i well know to be extremely improbable so an act may be intentional with respect to a particular circumstance although the chance of the existence of that circumstance is known to be exceedingly small intention is the foresight of a desired issue however improbable not the foresight of an undesired issue however probable if i fire a rifle in the direction of a man half a mile away i may know perfectly well that the chance of hitting him is not one in a thousand i may fully expect to miss him nevertheless i intend to hit him if i desire to do so he who steals a letter containing a check intentionally steals the check also if he hopes that the letter may contain one even though he well knows that the odds against the existence of such a circumstance are very great conversely expectation does not in itself amount to intention an operating surgeon may know very well that his patient will probably die in the operation yet he does not intend the fatal consequence which he expects he intends the recovery which he hopes for but does not expect although nothing can be intended which is not desired it must be carefully noticed that the thing may be desired and therefore intended not in itself or for its own sake but for the sake of something else with which it is necessarily connected if i desire and intend a certain end i also desire and intend the means by which this end is to be obtained even though in themselves those means may be indifferent or even objects of aversion if i kill a man in order to rob him i desire and intend his death even though i deeply regret in his interests or in my own the necessity of it in the same way the desire and intention of an end extend not merely to the means by which it is obtained but to all necessary concomitants without which it cannot be obtained if an anarchist desiring to kill the emperor throws a bomb into his carriage knowing that if it explodes and kills him it will also kill others who are riding with him the assassin both desires and intends to kill those others this additional slaughter may in itself be in no way desired by him he may be genuinely sorry for it yet it falls within the boundaries of his desire and of his intent since it is believed by him to be a necessary concomitant of the end which he primarily seeks the deaths of the emperor and the members of his suite are inseparably connected and they constitute therefore a single issue which must be desired and intended as a unity or not at all when i know or believe that a cannot be had without b i cannot say that i intend a but not b if i desire a sufficiently to overcome my aversion to b then i desire the total issue to which a and b are the two inseparable factors with respect to all circumstances which i know or believe to exist and with respect to all consequences which i know or believe to be inevitable my act is intentional however undesirable those circumstances or consequences may be in themselves i choose them deliberately and consciously as necessary incidents of that which i desire and intend for its own sake any genuine belief however that an event may not happen coupled with a genuine desire that it shall not is sufficient to prevent it from being intended so any genuine doubt as to the existence of a circumstance coupled with a genuine hope that it does not exist is enough to prevent the act from being intentional as to that circumstance the act may be grossly negligent it may be absolutely reckless 
but it is not intentional. If I fire a rifle at A, knowing that I may very probably hit B, who is standing close to him, I do not for that reason intend to hit B, I genuinely intend and desire not to hit him. An intention to hit B would be inconsistent with my admitted intention to hit A. Section 134. Intention and Motive. A wrongful act is seldom intended and desired for its own sake. The wrongdoer has in view some ulterior object which he desires to obtain by means of it. The evil which he does to another, he does and desires only for the sake of some resulting good which he will obtain for himself. He intends the attainment of this ulterior object no less than he intends the wrongful act itself. His intent, therefore, is twofold, and is divisible into two distinct portions, which we may distinguish as his immediate and his ulterior intent. The former is that which relates to the wrongful act itself. The latter is that which passes beyond the wrongful act, and relates to the object or series of objects for the sake of which the act is done. The immediate intent of the thief is to appropriate another person's money, while his ulterior intent may be to buy food with it or to pay a debt. The ulterior intent is called the motive for the act. The immediate intent is that part of the total intent which is coincident with the wrongful act itself. The ulterior intent or motive is that part of the total intent which lies outside the boundaries of the wrongful act. For just as the act is not necessarily confined within the limits of the intent, so the intent is not necessarily confined within the limits of the act. The wrongdoer's immediate intent, if he has one, is his purpose to commit the wrong. His ulterior intent, or motive, is his purpose in committing it. Every wrongful act may raise two distinct questions with respect to the intent of the doer. The first of these is, how did he do the act, intentionally or accidentally? The second is, if he did it intentionally, why did he do it? The first is an inquiry into his immediate intent. The second is concerned with his ulterior intent, or motive. The ulterior intention of one wrongful act may be the commission of another. I may make a die with intent to coin bad money. I may coin bad money with the intent to utter it. I may utter it with the intent to defraud. Each of these acts is or may be a distinct criminal offense, and the intention of any one of them is immediate with respect to that act itself, but ulterior with respect to all that goes before it in the series. A person's ulterior intent may be complex instead of simple. He may act from two or more concurrent motives instead of from only one. He may institute a prosecution, partly from a desire to see justice done, but partly also from ill will towards the defendant. He may pay one of his creditors preferentially on the eve of bankruptcy, partly from a desire to benefit him at the expense of the others, and partly from a desire to gain some advantage for himself. Now the law, as we shall see later, sometimes makes liability for an act depend upon the motive with which it is done. The Bankruptcy Act, for example, regards as fraudulent any payment made by a debtor immediately before his bankruptcy, with the intent to prefer one of his creditors to the others. In all such cases, the presence of mixed or concurrent motives raises a difficulty of interpretation. The phrase, with intent to, or its equivalents, may mean any one of at least four different things. 1. 
that the intent referred to must be the sole or exclusive intent, two, that it is sufficient if it is one of several concurrent intents, three, that it must be the chief or dominant intent, any others being subordinate or incidental, four, that it must be a determining intent, that is to say, an intent in the absence of which the act would not have been done, the remaining purposes being insufficient motives by themselves. It is a question of construction which of these meanings is the true one in the particular case. Section 135. Malice. Closely connected with the law and theory of intentional wrongdoing is the legal use of the word malice. In a narrow and popular sense, this term means ill-will, spite, or malevolence, but its legal signification is much wider. Malice means, in law, wrongful intention. It includes any intent which the law deems wrongful, and which therefore serves as a ground of liability. Any act done with such an intent is, in the language of the law, malicious, and this legal usage has etymology in its favor. The Latin Malitia means badness, physical or moral, wickedness in disposition or conduct, not specifically or exclusively ill-will or malevolence. Hence the malice of English law, including all forms of evil purpose, design, intent, or motive. We have seen, however, that intent is of two kinds, being either immediate or ulterior, the ulterior intent being commonly distinguished as the motive. The term malice is applied in law to both these forms of intent, and the result is a somewhat puzzling ambiguity which requires careful notice. When we say that an act is done maliciously, we mean one of two distinct things. We mean either that it is done intentionally, or that it is done with some wrongful motive. In the phrases malicious homicide and malicious injury to property, malicious is merely equivalent to willful or intentional. I burn down a house maliciously if I burn it on purpose, but not if I burn it negligently. There is here no reference to any ulterior purpose or motive. But on the other hand, malicious prosecution does not mean intentional prosecution. It means a prosecution inspired by some motive of which the law disapproves. A prosecution is malicious, for example, if its ulterior intent is the extortion of money from the accused. So also with the malice which is needed to make a man liable for defamation on a privileged occasion. I do not utter defamatory statements maliciously, simply because I utter them intentionally. Although the word malitia is not unknown to Roman lawyers, the usual and technical name for wrongful intent is dolus, or more specifically, dolus malice. Dolus and culpa are the two forms of mens rea. In a narrower sense, however, Dolus includes merely that particular variety of a wrongful intent which we term fraud, that is to say, the intent to deceive. From this limited sense, it was extended to cover all forms of willful wrongdoing. The English term fraud has never received an equally wide extension. It resembles dolus, however, in having a double use. In its narrow sense it means deceit, as we have just said, and is commonly opposed to force. In a wider sense, it includes all forms of dishonesty, that is to say, all wrongful conduct inspired by a desire to derive profit from the injury of others. In this sense, fraud is commonly opposed to malice in its popular sense. I act fraudulently when the motive of my wrongdoing is to derive some material gain for myself, 
whether by way of deception force or otherwise but i act maliciously when my motive is the pleasure of doing harm to another rather than the acquisition of any advantage for myself to steal property is fraudulent to damage or destroy it is malicious section 136 relevance and irrelevance of motives we have already seen in what way and to what extent a man's immediate intent is material in a question of liability as a general rule no act is a sufficient basis of responsibility unless it is done either willfully or negligently intention and negligence are the two alternative formal conditions of penal liability we have now to consider the relevance or materiality not of the immediate but of the ulterior intent to what extent does the law take into account the motives of a wrongdoer to what extent will it inquire not merely what the defendant has done but why he has done it to what extent is malice in the sense of improper motive an element in legal wrongdoing in answer to this question we may say generally subject however to very important qualifications that in law a man's motives are irrelevant as a general rule no act otherwise lawful becomes unlawful because done with a bad motive and conversely no act otherwise unlawful is excused or justified because of the motives of the doer however good the law will judge a man by what he does not by the reasons for which he does it it is certainly says lord herschel a general rule of our law that an act prima facie lawful is not unlawful and actionable on account of the motives which dictated it so it has been said no use of property which would be legal if due to a proper motive can become illegal because it is prompted by a motive which is improper or even malicious much more harm than good says lord macnaughton would be done by encouraging or permitting inquiries into motives when the immediate act alleged to have caused the loss for which redress is sought is in itself innocent or neutral in character and one which anybody may do or leave undone without fear of legal consequences such an inquisition would i think be intolerable an illustration of this irrelevance of motives is the right of a landowner to do harm to adjoining proprietors in certain defined ways by acts done on his own land he may intercept the access of light to his neighbor's windows or withdraw by means of excavation the support which his land affords to his neighbor's house or drain away the water which would otherwise supply his neighbor's well his right to do all these things depends in no way on the motive with which he does them the law cares nothing whether his acts are inspired by an honest desire to improve his own property or by a malevolent impulse to damage that of others he may do as he pleases with his own to this rule as to the irrelevance of motives there are however very important exceptions more especially in the criminal law the chief of these are the following section 137 criminal attempts an attempt to commit an indictable offence is itself a crime every attempt is an act done with intent to commit the offence so attempted the existence of this ulterior intent or motive is of the essence of the attempt the act in itself may be perfectly innocent but is deemed criminal by reason of the purpose with which it is done to mix arsenic in food is in itself a perfectly lawful act for it may be that the mixture is designed for the poisoning of rats 
but if the purpose is to kill a human being the act becomes by reason of this purpose the crime of attempted murder in such cases a rational system of law cannot avoid considering the motive as material for it is from the motive alone that the act derives all its mischievous tendency and therefore its wrongful nature although every attempt is an act done with intent to commit a crime the converse is not true every act done with this intent is not an attempt for it may be too remote from the completed offence to give rise to criminal liability notwithstanding the criminal purpose of the doer i may buy matches with the intent to burn a haystack and yet be clear of attempted arson but if i go to the stack and there light one of the matches my intent has developed into a criminal attempt to intend to commit a crime is one thing to get ready to commit it is another to try to commit it is a third we may say indeed that every intentional crime involves four distinct stages intention preparation attempt and completion the two former are commonly innocent an unacted intent is no more a ground of liability than is an unintended act the will and the deed must go together even action in pursuance of the intent is not commonly criminal if it goes no further than the stage of preparation i may buy a pistol with a felonious purpose and yet remain free from legal guilt there is still a locus poenitentiae but the two last stages in the offence namely attempt and completion are grounds of legal liability how then are we to draw the line which thus separates innocence from guilt what is the distinction between preparing to commit a crime and attempting to commit it how far may a man go along the path of his criminal intent and yet turn back in safety if his heart or the occasion fails him this is a question to which english law gives no definite or sufficient answer an attempt to commit a crime says sir james stevens in his digest of the criminal law is an act done with intent to commit that crime and forming part of a series of acts which would constitute its actual commission if it were not interrupted the point at which such a series of acts begins cannot be defined but depends upon the circumstances of each particular case this however affords no adequate guidance and lays down no principle which would prevent a conviction for attempted forgery on proof of the purchase of ink and paper the german criminal code on the other hand defines an attempt as an act done with intent to commit a crime and amounting to the commencement of the execution of it that is to say an act is not an attempt unless it forms a constituent part of the completed crime otherwise it is merely preparatory it may be doubted however whether this is a sufficient solution of the problem we know when a crime is completed but at what stage in the long series of preliminary acts does it begin not later it would seem than the earliest act done with the requisite criminal intent yet this act may be too far remote to constitute an attempt what then is the true principle the question is a difficult one but the following answer may be suggested an attempt is an act of such a nature that it is itself evidence of the criminal intent with which it is done a criminal attempt bears criminal intent on its face res ipsa loquitur an act on the other hand which is in itself and on the face of it innocent is not a criminal attempt and cannot be made punishable by evidence aliende as to the purpose with which it was done to buy matches with intent to commit arson is not attempted arson 
because the act is innocent on its face, there being many lawful reasons for the purchase of matches. But to buy dyes with the intent to coin money is attempted forgery, for the act speaks for itself. For the same reason to buy or load a gun with murderous intent is not, in ordinary circumstances, attempted murder. But to lie in wait with the loaded weapon, or to present it, or discharge it, is an act which itself proclaims the criminal purpose with which it is done, and it is punishable accordingly. If this is the correct explanation of the matter, the ground of the distinction between preparation and attempt is evidential merely. The reason for holding a man innocent who does not act with intent to commit a crime is the danger involved in the admission of evidence upon which persons may be punished for acts which in themselves and in appearance are perfectly innocent. Cogitationis peonam nemo patitur. No man can be safely punished for his guilty purposes, save so far as they have manifested themselves in overt acts which themselves proclaim his guilt. There is yet another difficulty in the theory of attempts. What shall be said if the act done with intent to commit a crime is of such a nature that the completion of the crime by such means is impossible? As if I attempt to steal by putting my hand into an empty pocket, or to poison by administering sugar which I believe to be arsenic. It was long supposed to be the law of England that there could be no conviction for an attempt in such cases. It was considered that an attempt must be part of a series of acts and events which, in its completeness, would actually constitute the offense attempted. Recent decisions have determined the law otherwise. The possibility of a successful issue is not a necessary element in an attempt, and this conclusion seems sound in principle. The matter, however, is not free from difficulty, since it may be argued on the other side that acts which, in their nature, cannot result in any harm, are not mischievous either in their tendency or in their results, and therefore should not be treated as crimes. Shall an attempt to procure the death of one's enemy by means of witchcraft be punished as attempted murder? Section 138. Other Exceptions to the Irrelevance of Motives Criminal attempts constitute, as we have seen, the first of the exceptions to the rule that a person's ulterior intent or motive is irrelevant in the law. A second exception comprises all those cases in which a particular intent forms part of the definition of a criminal offense. Burglary, for example, consists in breaking and entering a dwelling-house by night with intent to commit a felony thereon. So forgery consists in making a false document with intent to defraud. In all such instances the ulterior intent is the source, in whole or in part, of the mischievous tendency of the act, and is therefore material in law. In civil, as opposed to criminal liability, the ulterior intent is very seldom relevant. In almost all cases the law looks to the act alone, and makes no inquiries into the motives from which it proceeds. There are, however, certain exceptions, even in the civil law, and the chief, if not all, of these fall within the principle that a harmful act may be damnum sine injuria, if done from a proper motive and without malice, but loses this protection so soon as it proceeds from some motive of which the law does not approve. It may be expedient in the public interest to allow certain specified kinds of harm to be done to individuals, as long as they are done for some good and sufficient reason. But the ground of this privilege falls away so soon as it is abused for bad ends. In such cases, therefore, malice is an essential element in the cause of action. Examples of wrongs of this class are defamation, in cases of privilege, 
and malicious prosecution. In these instances, the plaintiff must prove malice, because in all of them the defendant's act is one which falls under the head of damnum sine injuria so long, but only so long, as it is done with good intent. Section 139. Jus necessitatis. We shall conclude our examination of the theory of willful wrongdoing by considering a special case in which, although intention is present, the mens rea is nevertheless absent. This is the case of the jus necessitatis. So far as the abstract theory of responsibility is concerned, an act which is necessary is not wrongful, even though done with full and deliberate intention. It is a familiar proverb that necessity knows no law. Necessitas non habit legum. By necessity is here meant the presence of some motive adverse to the law, and of such exceeding strength as to overcome any fear that can be inspired by the threat of legal penalties. The just necessitatis is the right of a man to do that from which he cannot be dissuaded by any terror of legal punishment. Where threats are necessarily ineffective, they should not be made, and their fulfillment is the infliction of needless and uncompensated evil. The common illustration of this right of necessity is the case of two drowning men clinging to a plank that will not support more than one of them. It may be the moral duty of him who has no one dependent on him to sacrifice himself for the other who is a husband or father. It may be the moral duty of the old to give way to the young. But it is idle for the law to lay down any other rule save this, that it is the right of the stronger to use his strength for his own preservation. Another familiar case of necessity is that in which shipwrecked sailors are driven to choose between death by starvation on the one side and murder and cannibalism on the other. A third case is that of crime committed under the pressure of illegal threats of death or grievous bodily harm. If, says Hobbes, a man by the terror of present death be compelled to do a fact against the law, he is totally excused, because no law can oblige a man to abandon his own preservation. It is to be noticed that the test of necessity is not the powerlessness of any possible, but that of any reasonable punishment. It is enough if the lawless motives to act will necessarily countervail the fear of any penalty which it is just and expedient that the law should threaten. If burning alive were a fit and proper punishment for petty theft, the fear of it would probably prevent a starving wretch from stealing a crust of bread, and the just necessitatis would have no place. But we cannot place the rights of property at so high a level. There are cases, therefore, in which the motives to crime cannot be controlled by any reasonable punishment. In such cases, an essential element of the mens rea, namely freedom of choice, is absent, and so far as abstract theory is concerned, there is no sufficient basis of legal liability. As a matter of practice, however, evidential difficulties prevent any but the most limited scope being permitted to the justness of status. In how few cases can we say with any approach to certainty that the possibility of self-control is really absent, that there is no true choice between good and evil? and that the deed is one for which the doer is rightly irresponsible. In this conflict between the requirements of theory and the difficulties of practice, the law has resorted to compromise. While in some few instances necessity is admitted as a grounds of excuse, it is in most cases regarded as relevant to the measure rather than to the existence of liability. It is acknowledged as a reason for the reduction of the penalty, even to a nominal amount, but not for its total remission. 
homicide in the blind fury of irresistible passion is not innocent but neither is it murder it is reduced to the lower level of manslaughter shipwrecked sailors who kill and eat their comrades to save their own lives are in law guilty of murder itself but the clemency of the crown will commute the capital sentence to a shorter term of imprisonment end of section twenty seven